950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you on today's 4 p.m. show, the second to last ever 4 p.m. show that I will be hosting. Uh, Starting next week, my show is going to be moving to weekdays at 2 p.m. And a reminder, democracy now not going away. That will just be weekdays at 4. So, yeah, that move takes place next week where Democracy Now! and my show are trading slots on the schedule. My show at 2 o'clock, Democracy Now! at 4 p.m. So what's on tap today? Well, we're going to be speaking with John Nichols of The Nation magazine as he recently wrote a piece titled The Loser President that highlights an issue that Democrats are missing that I think could really cost them this fall. And that's the fact that they could win the popular vote by an even wider margin than Hillary Clinton did in 2016 and still lose the Electoral College, something that I don't think a lot of Democratic candidates are paying enough attention to. So we'll chat with John Nichols about that piece and... And some others coming up in the second half of the show. But first, we're going to be talking about this Senate Judiciary Committee gun hearing that took place on Tuesday in Hibbing. Here's my conversation with Kevin Featherly, who is the Capitol reporter for Min Lawyer. And he also attended that meeting that we're going to talk about. So back on Tuesday, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a meeting up in Hibbing talking about a number of gun bills that are being proposed in the state Senate, including four from Republicans and two from Democrats. Now, this meeting was a little unusual since typically committee meetings usually happen, well, at the state capitol in St. Paul. But this one was actually in Hibbing on Tuesday. And someone who attended that meeting is Kevin Featherly. He is a capitol reporter for Min Lawyer as he joins us now on the program. Hey there, Kevin. How you doing? Great. Yeah, good to have you back on the show as uh, you're actually driving back from up north as we speak, so you're going to be able to give us kind of a first-hand account of what went down at this meeting. So I think the first important thing to point out was that these were just discussions. There were no official votes that took place whatsoever because sometimes that can be misconstrued when people are reading about that in different media reports, correct? That's correct. I I think it's uh, the, the Senate and the House can't vote on bills in the pre-session months in the, you know, the off-season, and we still haven't begun with the legislative session. So they couldn't have voted in if they had wanted to. Gotcha, yeah. So this was just basically a chance to hear debate from both sides in the public in a kind of an unusual area up in Hibbing, which typically doesn't get, well, many hearings up in that place. So tell us a little bit about what the turnout was like from both sides, because obviously we expected to have a lot of gun rights advocates attend that committee meeting, but I'm sure we also did get some people who were in favor of gun reform also attending as well. So tell us a little bit about who attended the meeting, what kind of turnout they had. I'd say a lot of VFW guys, a lot of uh, seniors from the local area, you know, a lot of older men. Uh, There were a number of uh, the the orange shirts that we see, the moms uh, group that's fighting for gun regulation. Um, But I think it was mainly dominated by locals, and I think they were squarely in the camp of the Republicans and really, really, really fe- fearful about losing their Second Amendment rights. And I think that the animosity that was a pretty prominent part of the meeting reflects that. So let's continue. Well, before we actually get into kind of the content of the debate from both sides and the response that we got from the senators that attended 
The meeting kind of got off to an interesting start because there was actually a dispute about whether there was an American flag displayed in the background. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it was already probably going to be a very contentious meeting, and that just kind of had a little bit more fuel to the fire. Right. I think that sort of set the tone um, dealing with the flag thing. So what happened is that about 20 minutes in, there had been an introduction from Senate Majority Leader Gazelka. He was present. He uh, greeted everybody, told them that he had chosen to have a nibbing because, after all, he graduated in Virginia, just a couple miles away, and thought that Iron Rangers should get a chance to hear these bills. And then he also uh, encouraged them to say that he wanted to get their feedback, which was, a, was something that Senator Limmer, the chair of the committee, sort of echoed, you know, we look forward to getting your feedback. Well... It was about 20 minutes into the meeting. There was a lot of introduction. I don't think that they'd even introduced a bill yet. They were going through their ground rules. They introduced themselves. And just suddenly, one of the old guys, elderly guys in the background, just started shouting out, where's the flag? And he said it in, he said it <laughs> in that crisp, hibbing pronunciation. He said, flag. And so Senator Limmer don't always didn't know what he was talking about at first. He said, he said play, well, the play is right here. Flag, I said. And uh, what had happened is that um, I learned this after the fact, after the meeting was over, there was some, you know, gussying up done of the Crown Ballroom, this historic Crown Ballroom in downtown Hipping where this place, this thing was held. And they had done some spot painting, gussy things up. And in, in the course of doing that sort of cleanup work and, you know, making it presentable for the out-of-towners, they took the flags down and they forgot to put them back. And uh, this guy just absolutely sort of freaked out about it and said, this is disrespectful. And he said something, it's sort of a non sequitur, you're shoving this down our throats. And I don't really know how that reflected it, but it certainly reflected his feeling uh, going into this whole thing. It, it almost struck me as he was planning to say that at some point, and he thought then was the time, even though it was sort of a non-sequitur in that, in that use case. <laughs> but yeah, that did get, that sort of set the tone. And, and after that, you know, people sort of just shouted out, as I put it in the lead of the story that I wrote, you know, this uh, Senate committee went up north to have a deliberative hearing and a, a raucous town hall meeting broke out. Yeah, that, that just seems like it absolutely set the tone. I'm just sitting there thinking, if I were at this meeting, I would obviously expect it to be very contentious with a lot of very heated debate. And yeah, to actually have that start off with someone shouting out about the flag, that certainly added to the atmosphere. And as you were also kind of alluding to as well, it didn't. It, it seemed like at some point, yeah, there actually was some respectful debate, but it also seemed like a lot that the, at least reading what the Duluth News Tribune wrote about this as well, there was a lot of shouting of, of insults from both sides. So it wasn't always the yeah. most civil debate either, was it? Oh, well, and when we say debate, um, that's true. But I, I think of debate as between the testifiers and, and the members of the committee. These folks were all in the audience and they were shouting out cat calls and they weren't part of the debate or weren't supposed to be, but as I said, I think that the leadership sort of encouraged these folks, uh, led them to believe that they were going to give feedback of some kind, but then told them that they'd already signed up all of the testifiers that they were going to have. They were going to solicit no more testimony, 
And I think these folks were frustrated that they thought they were going to have their chance to have their say about this stuff and weren't given a seat at the microphone. And so they just elected to go ahead and say what was on their mind. And, you know, that ranged from the somewhat thoughtful to the scatological. It was, uh, it was quite the thing. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up, if almost they were intending for that to happen, because as we discussed last week, yeah, it's interesting you bring that up, because as we talked about last week, you basically had a week to submit your name to be able to speak at this forum. You had, uh, I believe it was uh, until Wednesday of last week to be able to speak at the forum, which was going to be at the Tuesday of next week. So I do kind of wonder, in a way, if maybe it was set up intentionally this way, where they would have people who wouldn't be allowed to speak, so then you can obviously create a very contentious situation with people who are frustrated and are going to yell things. I could see that being politically beneficial. What do you think about that, Kevin? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little bit of issue with that. I, I'll go with you to a certain degree okay. that you're sort of right, and I'll, I'll get to that. But I, on the on sort of the the count, contrary take on that, I do really think Warren Limmer was genuinely surprised at the at the level of control that he utterly lost. I think I don't think he anticipated that, um, mm-hmm. and I think that by inviting feedback, I mean it's a pretty normal thing for folks in at capital committee hearings to sign up mid-hearing and, and give testimony. And I think he just sort of, that was just inertia. He, he always sort of says that. But in this case, that wasn't possible because they had 27 people pre-signed to testify to these uh, six bills. And there's, I mean, it was a, it was a more than a five-hour meeting. If they would have invited actual testimony from people in the audience, it could have gone all night long. I mean, we could be in there till midnight. And so I think there was a surprise. But to, 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 on the other side of the flip, the, the flip of the coin that you're talking about, I think that in this sense, you're right. I think that Limmer wanted, those, uh, wanted to have this thing, and Gazelka wanted to have this thing in the iron range because they wanted, I think, the DFL to get a real sense, you know, a, a, a real sort of... Uh, mm-hmm in the gut sense of how people on the ground are feeling about this issue, you know, in the Iron Range in greater Minnesota and, and get that sort of visceral reaction directly from these people. Because as Limmer said, you know, usually when these gun bills are, are brought forward, they're brought forward by metro people. And the people who attend the Capitol, who have time to attend the Capitol, are people from closer in in the cities. And so I think you're right to that extent. I think that they wanted to them to get this flavor, but I really think the loss of control was much more than anybody anticipated. And I would just kind of sit there and say, if you're if you're Limmer, I mean, what else would you expect when you're debating an issue like guns? It would be like almost holding a public forum or a public hearings on an issue like abortion. It's one of the hot-button issues of our political time, and you kind of have to expect that things are probably going to get out of control. But that's at least me saying that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. It could have been foreseen. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So here's my next question for you, because I was looking through some of the senators who actually sit on the Judiciary Committee, and there are some interesting senators there that represent districts that possibly could swing one way or another coming up in this 2020 election. So before we get into that, who actually attended this meeting among the politicians? Was it every senator who actually is on the Judiciary Committee, or were some absent? Or talk a little bit about that. Um, as I recall, everybody but Sandy Pappas was there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then there was a, 
Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, that's. I'm pretty sure that's right. The Republicans were all there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ron Latz was there, um, and Sherry Dietzik was there, but Sandy Pappas was not. Gotcha, because there's a couple that kind of struck me, and one of them is actually not a Democrat, it's a Republican, and it's Dan Hall, who represents District 56, uh-huh. which is a portion of Lakeville. Hall, Bur- right? uh, he's actually Burnsville. Oh, Dan Hall, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dan Hall's not on there. Yes, yes, he is, yes, he is, I'm sorry, yes, he is there. And he was there, but he was silent through the whole thing, I don't remember See. him saying anything. Uh, I know that Senator Johnson was there, he said nothing. That's not unusual, Senator Johnson rarely does. Mm-hmm. Jerry Ralph He's from St. Cloud. That's who I thought you were talking about at first. Oh, gotcha. He, yep. he did speak up a little bit. He had some things to say. Um, uh, Sheriff Ingerbertson was the guy who I thought had the most interesting thing to say. He's uh, I can't remember what district he's from exactly or what town he's from, but I know he's greater Minnesota. He's a former sheriff. He's been on the committee a long time. He's relatively outspoken. And the one thing he said that really struck me was that, you know, any of these bills that the DFL wants to do, you know, regardless, he didn't put it this way, but sort of this is how you could interpret what he's saying. Regardless of their merits, it's the case of, as he did put it, the camel getting his nose under the tent. In other words, and, and he uh, mentioned medical marijuana. He said, look what happened with medical marijuana. At first, it was for a limited number of of uh, diagnoses, and now it's expanding, and before you know it, we're going to have people smoking dope recreationally, and I see this happening the same way, so his stance is, we want to stop this in the bud, we don't want anything to pass, we don't want to deal with this at all, stop any kind of gun safety legislation from going forward. And that was part one of my conversation with Kevin Featherly. He's the Capitol reporter for Min Lawyer, and he attended this Tuesday meeting of the Senate Judiciary Committee regarding guns inhibiting. Coming up in part two of our conversation on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about some of the specific bills that were discussed. Back on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. So right now we're speaking with Kevin Featherly, who is the Capitol reporter from Min Lawyer, about this Senate Judiciary Committee that took place in Hibbing regarding some gun bills that are being debated by the state Senate. Let's get back to my conversation now, as we're going to talk more specifically about some of these bills. All right, so Kevin, let's talk about some of these bills that were heard and kind of debated at this hearing up in Hibbing. There were four Republican bills and two Democratic bills. Now, we kind of divided the Republican bills into two categories. We have two that basically have no chance whatsoever of ever getting through the legislature or getting signed by Governor Walls. That's a bill from Mark Corrin, which is basically well, what I call, for lack of a better way of putting it, the guns everywhere bill, which would allow Minnesotans to carry guns literally anywhere in the state without a permit. The other one is the Stand Your Ground bill. I believe that was proposed by Senator Kerry Rude. So, obviously, we probably Correct. knew that's red meat to throw at a lot of these people who are attending the, this debate that are in favor of expanding gun rights. So, I'm or gun or gun rights in uh, in Minnesota. So, I imagine we pretty much got exactly what we expected during debate on these two bills. Correct. We did, and I, I want to throw something in because I think this is interesting. Ron Latz sort of, uh, you know, before this whole thing started, there was a little press conference. Ron Latz is a DFL senator, the former chair of this committee, who authored the two uh, DFL bills the, 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 um, that went forward there, um, mm-hmm. the red flag bill and the background checks. 
what six what, what Senator Lapps was saying about the reason there were six bills is because he thinks leadership wanted the public to look at those six bills, see two on one extreme, the the Rude and and the Koran bill, and two on the other extreme, his two DFL bills, and two in the middle is sort of the responsible, reasonable, Republican alternative. And, and that's why he thinks there were six bills, which frankly for a hearing like that was probably too many. It took too long. And it's probably the main reason why the locals didn't get a chance to to speak, to testify, to give their points of view during, during this meeting. There were just simply too many bills, too many testifiers. They were crowded out. Yeah, and I imagine the two DFL bills probably got the response we expected from a meeting like that, and the two yeah. extreme Republican bills yeah. got the exact response we probably expected from those bills. But the two I want to focus on are the so-called reasonable Republican bills. One of them's from Eric Pratt, which would basically strengthen existing law related to judiciary-ordered or firearm seizures. And then another one is from Paul Anderson. He's a senator from Plymouth, which increases the penalty from a gross misdemeanor to a felony for illegally transferring firearms to someone who is ineligible to possess weapons. So what was the response, at least from the constituents at this meeting, in regards to those two bills, because those are the so-called Republican compromise bills? I'll tell you, the response from the crowd for all four bills was kind of muted. And I, I, the, the real response, the real cantankerousness was all about the last bills. After those were done, the room sort of deflated and became a lot less emotional. It really, and and Lapp said the reason he thinks that is the case is because these folks are motivated by this terror that their liberties are going to be removed. And, and in effect, you know, whatever the the other bills were kind of an anti-climax for them. But to get to the point that you're making about those two bills, I think that, you know, what we discussed last week sort of panned out. These were bills um, aimed at demonstrating the Republican point that we need to strengthen existing laws. That's exactly what the presenters said that they were all about. Um, did they get a big response? Not really. I mean, people were happy. They applauded, uh, but there wasn't all. There wasn't the cat calls. There wasn't, you know, there just wasn't the same kind of response. There was a little bit of that when the opponents to those bills rose, but it just never reached that that level that it had been while the DFL bills were being considered. I was going to ask who who were actually the opponents to those two bills because I could actually see opponents being on both the gun rights side and also the gun reform side. Well, you're right about the. Um, I don't think there was, you know, you, you, you actually raised an important point. There were no opponents. There were no testifiers for or against really? okay. Anderson's bill. He, he spoke to it alone, and that, that was the end of the bill. And I don't believe Pratt had any, any additional testifiers either. So I don't think that, um, I think that's correct. I don't think anybody spoke other than the, the bill author spoke for or against those two bills. Mm-hmm. Boy, it, was the, it was the, the ones on the sort of, uh, you know, on the bleeding edge, you might say, that mm -hmm. got the, the pro and con responses and, on and the Republican side. And I just kind of wonder from the political strategist side if maybe those are the two that end up getting passed in the Senate, because if that's not firing up either side, obviously, if you're a politician, you kind of love that because you're not going to get a lot of heat from either side if you end up passing two bills like that. So I wonder if we'll end up uh, possibly uh, reading some tea leaves here and maybe end up seeing those passed through the state's. Senate. So, yeah, what, what I wanted to talk about here, too, is that 
Really, in terms of changing anyone's mind, obviously, that probably didn't happen at this meeting among the constituents and the people who were there, and also probably among the senators as well. But, yeah, that one point about the fact that the two more moderate bills didn't really garner any reaction, maybe that could tell us something about the legislative session. But overall, your, your final thoughts on this kind of is that really no minds were changed whatsoever. So at least in terms of that, really nothing was accomplished in terms of maybe changing minds or getting people to switch their votes. If there was anything that might have been accomplished, it might have been the point that you're sort of alluding to. Okay, these BFL bills have had a hearing now. The other two have had a hearing now. We can take that off the table. And I asked Senator Limmer at the end of the meeting if he was going to commit to hearing these bills. He suggested that they might get a hearing uh, as he was talking during the during the meeting. Um but he didn't commit to it, and he said, we've got a whole lot of bills from last session to catch up on, and, you know, we have to we have to deal with other constituents' concerns, too, so we're going to have to sort of root through what we want to push forward and, and what we don't. He didn't say one way or the other what he's going to do, but, you know, the suggestion, at least, is that these bills are probably going to be allowed to go to sleep, and it's possible that the, the two, the Koran, or excuse me, the... Um, the two moderate bills, the Pratt and the Anderson bill, might then survive as sort of the 2020 gun legislation. Yeah, we shall see as the legislature picks up coming up next month. We've been speaking with Kevin Featherly. He is the Capitol reporter for Min Lawyer and encourage you to check out his work as he is one of the people who follows what's going on at the legislature very closely. And Kevin, I'm sure we'll be uh, checking in with you here in the coming days and weeks as uh, once we get into that legislative session. So appreciate you joining me on the program today and telling us about this meeting up in Hibbing. Yeah, thank you and thanks to everybody for ignoring my car noise. <laughs> hey, we can live with that car noise. Hey, we're getting this talk in real time, which is kind of fun, though, right? <laughs> While still right. fresh on your mind, the meeting. All right, thanks again, Kevin. Be well. And make sure you follow Kevin's work over at Minnesota Lawyer, as he really does cover the state legislature very closely, and you can find more information over at MINNLawyer.com. Coming up next, we'll be speaking with John Nichols of The Nation magazine, talking about Democratic strategy and what they might be missing in terms of the Electoral College. That's on the way next, but first, let's get to 2020 Talks from Public News Service. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to the 4 o'clock show with Brett. Well, happy to be joined now by John Nichols of The Nation magazine. He is one of the writers for The Nation and always enjoy following his work and glad to have him on the program to talk about some of the pieces he wrote, including one titled The Loser President, which we'll get to in just a second. But John, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Appreciate it. It's a great honor to be with you. I, uh, I listen to you guys when I'm up in the Twin Cities. Oh, excellent. Good. Uh, even a fan of AM 950. Even better. <laughs> I am a fan. A- absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. So this piece you wrote I found really interesting because I did the typical political hack thing at the beginning of the year and made predictions for what will happen in 2020. And my prediction was that whoever the Democratic nominee will win the popular vote by about four or five percentage points, but still lose the Electoral College because of what happens in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Because 
Well, something that I think people often forget is that even though Trump won all three of those states in 2016, he only needs to win one of those in 2020 to hang on and win the Electoral College in 2020. And my prediction was, well, he's going to win Wisconsin but lose Pennsylvania and Michigan. And you were kind of writing about this same idea where, yeah, the Dems could expand their popular vote margin but still lose the Electoral College. In fact, the Democrats could do a lot better. They could win by four or five, even maybe six or seven million votes, uh, according to serious analyses done by, you know, number crunchers, uh, and still lose the Electoral College. And if I could give you a twist on this, because we're talking to uh, folks in Minnesota, if you look at how close Minnesota was in 2016, only about a 40,000 vote difference, uh, gave it to Hillary Clinton. Uh, imagine that Trump loses Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, uh, but wins Minnesota. It could be Minnesota that gives it to him. Um, and I, I know that would be very unsettling to the folks uh, up in the Twin Cities. But uh, this is the kind of stuff you have to think about. Our Our political process is very vulnerable to a, uh, a twist or a turn that might be quite unexpected on the part of most of us and yet could give the presidency to a guy who lost, who by, by the measures of almost any country in the world. As okay. you were writing about, do you think the Democratic candidates are doing enough to put focus on this aspect that they could potentially, yeah, lose the Electoral College and win the popular vote? Because we hear people like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, even Joe Biden talking about the Electoral College and maybe how we should get rid of it. At least Warren's been talking about that. But that doesn't really do anything in the short term because ultimately in 2020, well, you got to win the thing. That's exactly right. So you got to put both of these pieces together. Um, there's no question that progressives, no matter what their, you know, kind of political bent, ought to be in favor of eliminating the electoral college. It's anti-democratic. It's a, it's really a horrible institution that that warps our politics in all sorts of nasty ways. It's especially bad for rural areas. Um, it leaves them severely neglected, um, not just in in uh, some of the bigger states. But even in a lot of smaller states as well, uh, one of the great lies is the fantasy that the Electoral College gives, you know, particular better representation to, um, you know, some parts of the country. It doesn't. It's, it fails both parties. It fails America. So we should be opposed to it. But on the theory that that opposition may not lead to its elimination in the immediate uh, moment in the 2020 electoral cycle, Democrats should be thinking, if, if they're taking on Donald Trump, very, very seriously about how to have an electoral college strategy that works. Um, Hillary Clinton did not lose 20, or 2016 because of most of the things that people talk about. There's all sorts of things that people like to blame Clinton herself. They like to blame her campaign. They like to blame the Russians. They like to blame, you know, voters who didn't show up or, you know, one group of voters versus another. But at, at the end of the day, the, the real blame for Hillary Clinton's defeat in 2016 was that her campaign lacked a smart, coherent electoral college strategy. An electoral college strategy is based on the idea that you have to win 270 votes. You've got to find those votes, uh, those electoral votes. And so, of course, you 
secure the places where you know you're strong. Uh, but then you also kind of build out toward places where you might have a possibility. You don't take risks, right, and aim for states that you're very unlikely to win. You focus on the places where you can. And to my mind, the biggest mistake that Hillary Clinton made at 16 was that she chose Tim Kaine as her vice presidential running mate. Uh, Democrats were going to win Virginia in 2016. That was a lock. Um, it was very obvious that the state had been trending to the Democrats. It's trended even more. But that was a pretty solid bet. But yet she chose Tim Kaine. Had she chosen somebody who uh, could get her across the line in places like Michigan, maybe even Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, um, somebody like a Sherrod Brown from Ohio, um, would she have done much better? I, I can almost guarantee you uh, that, that the, the circumstance would have been a much better one. But that's, that's making choices, making decisions based on how you get those electoral votes that you need. Yeah, talking about those VP picks, do you think that will be key coming up in 2020? Because, yeah, even looking back at 16 and her pick of Tim Kaine, regionally, yeah, maybe wasn't the best idea, but I would even talk about the fact that a lot of her progressive credentials were very often challenged in 2016, and that Tim Kaine pick seemed to be more of one that was to solidify moderate voters rather than actually making sure the base is on her side. So I think that aspect certainly plays into that. And it'll be interesting to see mm-hmm. yeah, whoever the 2020 nominee to try to balance that versus also making sure you maybe bring someone in on that VP spot that can regionally help you in the Midwest and other areas. I think that's exactly it. And there are people who could. I, I mentioned Sherrod Brown a moment ago, and I hear this absurd argument. They're like, oh, no, if you pick Sherrod Brown, you might, you know, that Senate seat might fall to the Republicans. Well, grow up, right? You know, we've just had, we've just had uh, you know, three years of Donald Trump's disastrous presidency. And you're saying, yeah, but I, I don't want to, you know, re- end it because I'm afraid of losing a Senate seat or I'm afraid of, you know, this or that. No, the beating Trump is an important thing. It's real. It's something that 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 demands folks, you know, making tough choices, making big moves. And so, yeah, perhaps having somebody like a Sherrod Brown as a running mate for an Elizabeth Warren, maybe that would really work. Maybe having um, a um, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin as a running mate for, um, say, uh, Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders. That also gets you into those battleground states and into, you know, a key part of the, the country in a smart way. Um, I might even suggest to you there's a couple of Minnesotans who, who might mm-hmm. uh, find a good place on a national ticket. And that's the way, in my opinion, the Democratic strategists ought to be thinking. They ought to be thinking about the states they need to win, uh, and that should be a part of the vice presidential pick. What I kind of find interesting, too, as we take it back to the Electoral College and strategy is that, yeah, we do hear Democrats saying, let's get rid of the Electoral College. But what I find is kind of a fascinating angle is that within a decade or two or maybe even a shorter amount of time, some of these Sunbelt states like an Arizona or a Florida or a Georgia, maybe not so much Florida, but like a Georgia or a North Carolina, those could very much become purplish type of blue states and all of a sudden it would be Democrats who would have an electoral advantage and then I would almost wonder if you would have Republicans who would be getting on board with trying to abolish the Electoral College. Well, no, it's a fair fair calculus and the truth of the matter is that historically there have been moments where Republicans have been up front 
that the Republicans are going to, in any short term, become critics of the Electoral College because the current model benefits them in a lot of ways. There's a strong small state bias, and that's because no matter how low your population is as a state, you get three electoral votes. That disproportionately benefits small states. Their, Their electoral power in the Electoral College is greater than big states, not in actual numbers, but in the influence that they have because it's, it's outsized, it's disproportional. And, um, and because of that, and because small states do tend to favor the Republicans, uh, the Republicans are not going to be very likely to make the change anytime soon. Um, they also have some regional advantages in the interior West, in the traditional South. Now, if that were to shift, of course, they'd be front and center to change it. And this is what's remarkable to me. Um, when Democrats have gotten power, as they did in 2009, uh, when they had clear majorities in the House and Senate and the President of the United States, that's when they, they should move immediately to eliminate this thing, to get rid of it. Um, and yeah, it might be nice to think someday the Republicans will do it, but um, they made a terrible, terrible mistake in 2009 when they didn't move to uh, do everything they could to eliminate it, even as hard as that is. Uh, because, of course, they lost the presidency again via the Electoral College in 2016. So in the last 20 years, just two decades, the Democrats have lost the presidency twice. In 2000 with George W. Bush, in 2016 with Donald Trump, they lost the presidency because of the Electoral College. And it ought to be a central theme of Democrats to get rid of this thing. Yeah, and even going back to like 2008, 2009, when Democrats did take power, they even had, well, a lot of legislative majorities at the state level where they certainly could have made those changes. They did. That, and that, was, that, would have been, mm-hmm. that would have been very beneficial. So they just had to think about this more. And that's really the main reason I wrote this article, uh, was to kind of pull in all the, the latest data to give people a real sense of what the threat is. And it's a very real threat. In fact, I would even go so far as to say there's an exceptionally good chance that Donald Trump could lose the popular vote by a substantial margin and still retain the presidency because of the Electoral College in 2020. So Democrats need to be thinking about this strategically in the immediate moment. And they also need to recognize that going forward, if they don't make themselves the party of of Electoral College abolition, uh, they really run the risk of having another cycle, another cycle after that, again and again losing the presidency even though they win the popular vote. And that was part one of my conversation with John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about the absurdity of The New York Times endorsing two Democratic candidates for president.
Welcome back to AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Let's get back to my conversation now with John Nichols of The Nation magazine, as we're going to be talking about the New York Times endorsing two Democratic candidates for president. We're speaking with John Nichols of The Nation magazine. So, John, uh, we're going to wrap up in just a few minutes, but I do have a couple more questions for you regarding another piece you wrote, and that is the New York Times, for whatever reason, endorsing two candidates, both Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, which as you write about in your piece, it's just absurd to have newspaper actually endorse two candidates from the same party. But I'm just kind of sitting there wondering, imagine if they actually did that for Republicans, if they endorsed one extreme Republican yeah. and one moderate Republican. The the whole idea of endorsing two candidates is just ridiculous. <laughs> it's totally ridiculous. And frankly, it did um, a lot of damage, in my opinion, uh, to the the potential of that endorsement, right? Had the the paper decided to pick one of those candidates or the other, I think they could have had a tremendous influence. Uh, let's say that they picked Elizabeth Warren. Um, might that have uh, given her candidacy uh, uh, a boost at a time when it's been struggling a little bit? I think there's a real possibility of that. Going into Iowa, going into New Hampshire, had Warren been able to point to a New York Times endorsement, I think it would have been at least of some significance, not definitional, but very valuable. And instead, she's in a position where all she gets to do is sort of share it, say, yeah, they like me or one of the other people that you might vote for. It's an absurd way of, of pushing yourself. Now, let's imagine another thing, too, because you're from Minnesota. Let's imagine that they'd taken a risk and endorsed Amy Klobuchar and said, you know what? She's the best candidate. She's got the best chance to win. We're for her. Imagine what that would have done for her candidacy. It really been, it would have been a hook to, you know, jumpstart herself uh, going into Iowa, going into New Hampshire. I think it would have been highly beneficial for her. So it, the interesting part about it is that the Times had two ways to be genuinely influential on this process. And frankly, to provide some clarity, instead, they, they blew both of their chances by doing a dual endorsement. And John, you also have kind of a unique perspective on this being that you've done newspaper endorsements yourself in the past. So what I'm wondering is, well, A, do newspaper endorsements matter as much as they used to? And if they do, can you kind of explain how so they, in terms of how they might influence a campaign and public perception? Sure, I think newspaper endorsements remain incredibly influential, but they don't remain influential in the way that people might you know, casually think. Getting an endorsement from a daily newspaper doesn't mean you're going to get the votes of everybody that reads that paper. Um, in fact, it doesn't even necessarily mean that people um, who were leaning toward another candidate might switch to you. That's, that can happen, and it does sometimes, but it's not really the heart of the thing. The heart of the thing is that a newspaper endorsement asks people to look at you again. It basically says, you know, hey, this candidate um, is really good. This candidate's got some real strengths. We reviewed all of them. We talked to all of them. We came to the conclusion, this is somebody you should pay attention to. And it's in that moment of a second look of a little bit of time spent considering that a candidate who's got their act together, who's got a good campaign, can really then capitalize on it and can benefit from it. So it's really a two-step process. It's, it's, the newspaper makes the endorsement, and then 
if the candidate has a is strong and has an ability to capitalize on it, then you know it can really have a very positive impact. And that's why, to this day, candidates try very, very hard to get the endorsements of newspapers. They seek them for a reason, and it is because um, they're legitimizers. They are, um, you know, they're identifiers. They give a, a, a certain sense of credibility uh, to a campaign that then can potentially be leveraged into support. So um, I do think that a New York Times endorsement could be very valuable. But unfortunately, the way that the Times did it, um, I think they, they undermined their ability to have the influence that they might have had. I think it'd certainly be worth a larger discussion on newspaper endorsements, but unfortunately, uh, we are up against the clock, so maybe we'll have to talk about that during another interview. We've been speaking with John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Definitely encourage you to go out and check out his work over at The Nation magazine. John, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Hey, it's a great honor to be with you, and I hope things keep going well for you. And you can follow more of the work that John Nichols writes for The Nation magazine over at thenation.com. A reminder, next week that programming switch takes place as my show will now be airing weekdays at 2 p.m., Democracy Now!, switching to 4 p.m. every weekday, so basically just a trade between my show and Democracy Now! Also, invite you to attend that impeachment forum coming up on Wednesday, January 29th, less than one week away. That'll be at Hamlin University with Professor David Schultz. Look forward to seeing you. Doors open at 6 o'clock with a talk beginning at 7 with David and me. And that event is free, so even more reason to attend. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you one final time on the 4 p.m. show tomorrow. Tomorrow.